Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Happy New Year, everyone. The This Is Nashville team and I hope you had a joyous holiday season and are ready for 2023. The new year brings new goals, new challenges, and new changes. Case in point, our very own state Supreme Court is getting a new justice. That's because longtime justice Sharon Lee is retiring. Justice Lee was appointed by former Governor Phil Bredesen in 2008 and is the last justice on the court appointed by a Democrat. So who will replace her? What are the qualifications to become a state Supreme Court justice? And how does our state Supreme Court work? Today, we'll learn more about the highest court in the volunteer state. But first, let's learn more about the five people vying to fill the empty seat left by Justice Sharon Lee. Who are they? And what's the process like to be appointed? Joining me now is Eric Shelzik, editor of the Tennessee Journal. He's been following the process and he joins me now. Eric Thank you for being here and welcome to This Is Nashville. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. So as I explained earlier, current Justice Sharon Lee is hanging up her robe. Why is she retiring right now? She's been on the court since 2008, and uh, she's the last holdover from a, a previous era in Tennessee politics when politics was much more closely divided between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, she's had a long and distinguished career, and she's just ready for retirement. So what's her legacy been on the court? She uh, is a has been a very sort of uh, progressive voice on the court, or more so than the rest of the court. Not on everything, but has been on a lot of uh, decisions that have gone, uh, you know, either on on the. She's been on a lot of decisions where she's either been on the correct side or the winning side or the losing side by a narrow margin, depending on how the ideology has shifted. She's the last remaining justice appointed by a Democratic governor. Did that pose any difficulties for her? Yes and no. She actually went to high school with uh, former Governor Bill Haslam, and they mm. were fairly close. And a lot of decisions by the court tend to be unanimous or have very little dissent. So it's only a few very uh, hot-button topics that tend to divide the court more narrowly. Uh, and in, in some of those cases, she was, again, just on either on narrowly on the losing side or narrowly on the winning side, depending on the case. All right. So now let's talk about how someone becomes a Supreme Court justice here in Tennessee. What are some of the main qualifications a person must have to be nominated? There aren't many. Uh, basically, you have to be an attorney is what it boils down to. There's, okay. a, li there's a little bit of a, a geographical issue, though, and the state constitution says that no more than two attorneys or two justices can hail from the same grand division of the state. Uh, as things stand right now, once she retires, there will be two from Middle Tennessee and two from West Tennessee, which means the vacancy must be filled by somebody from the eastern section of, of Tennessee. Is there an age requirement? Can a 24-year-old who recently graduated from law school become a Supreme Court justice? No, not quite. Uh, but I confess, I, I think it's 35, but I don't have it in front of me. But okay. <laughs> we'll have to check that one out. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we will check for all of you listeners. Check us out here at thisisnashville.org for that age requirement. Now, did many people apply for this opening? Not so many. Uh, the last time we had an opening was in 2021 uh, after the death of Justice Connie Clark. And at that point, the position could have been filled by uh, somebody from uh, the, the western section or the eastern section, and we had 11 uh, applicants. Mm -hmm. This time, there's only been five. Okay, so out of the five. Next up 
in the process is the applications, they're reviewed by a judicial selection panel, if I get that right. That's right. So uh, that's happening as we speak. Who sits on this panel and what are they looking for as they assess the applicants? The panel is called the Governor's Council on Judicial Appointments, uh, and it's entirely appointed by the governor. So it's basically a screening panel that uh, he sets up uh, to look at these candidates and then present him with a slate of, of three finalists. Uh, it seems less important this time when there's only five candidates to begin with. But again, with a bigger field, it, it, it helps the governor's office uh, to, to have you know, these candidates sort of whittled down to the, the best three in the eyes of, of that panel. Uh, it's up to them what they decide to like or not like. They essentially have interviews, public interviews with the finalists, and then they go into an executive session and, you know, come out when the white smoke uh, rises over the building and, mm -hmm. and, and announce who the finalists are. After that, uh, the governor's office, the governor's legal counsel takes over and uh, does their own diligence, due diligence on the, the finalists, and the governor interviews them as well. Meanwhile, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation conducts a background check to make sure there's no sort of criminal or, or other concerns in, in the backgrounds of the finalists if they were to be on the on the high court. And then uh, ultimately the governor chooses his favorite, uh, his nominee, and under a change of the state constitution in 2014, the nominee must then be uh, approved or rejected by the legislature uh, and vote separate votes by the House and Senate. Uh, nobody's ever been rejected so far, but it is a still a fairly new process. Uh, so that's that's what's coming up. Ha now, has this process ever been a little bit funky? Like what happens if the governor doesn't like any of the panel's recommendations? It has happened. Back in, in 2006, there was a vacancy on the court, and Governor Phil Bredesen at the time, again, the, the most recent or last Democrat to, to be the governor in the state, uh, didn't like the panel of three finalists. He was presented, and he sent it back to the judicial selection panel and said, give me three new new finalists, uh, which is in his purview and his, his right. The panel then sent back two of the same people and one new person, and the governor argued that that's not in the spirit of what he asked for. Mm -hmm. And there was a big court fight, and it went back and forth. And finally, it was decided that, no, it had to be three new candidates that the governor had that had to be presented to the governor. Uh, and then he, he chose at the time uh, Bill Koch, who's now uh, over at Nashville School of Law, who's since retired. Okay. Now, let's talk about these folks who made the round. And who could be our next Tennessee Supreme Court justice? Can you give us a brief rundown of the candidates? Let's start with appeals judge Christy Davis of Knoxville. Yeah, Christy Davis was a finalist for the last uh, opening on the high court uh, that went to Sarah Campbell in the end. Uh, so she has been experienced with this. She just went through this interview process before, and a lot of the same people are on the panel. So you would think that she has an advantage of, of familiarity, at least, mm. and also interviewed with the governor and, and so on. Uh, but yeah, she was a, a former circuit uh, court judge in Knoxville, and uh, and has been on was named to the Court of Appeals by Governor Lee in uh, 2020. So again, there's some familiarity there as well. Uh, what about criminal appeals judge Tom Greenholtz of Chattanooga? Uh, yeah, he's uh, he is a again criminal appeals judge. He's a former defense attorney, criminal defense attorney, who's handled some some high profile criminal cases, including dating back to the. The Tennessee Waltz corruption sting back in 2006, for mm -hmm. those of you who remember. Um, he represented Chris Newton, a Republican lawmaker who pleaded guilty in that uh, case. Um, he is a former law clerk for for then Supreme Court Justice Mickey Barker and has been on was named to the, the Court of Criminal Appeals last year again by Governor Lee. So, again, some familiarity there as well. So, but now we're moving on to Chancellor John C. Rambo of Jonesboro. 
Yeah, Rambo is a is a chancellor. Has been a chancellor since uh, 2013. He was named by Governor Bill Haslam. Uh, has handled a lot of ado- uh, adoption cases up there, and according to his application, he has the record for the most uh, adoptions cases that have been handled by any judge in the state um, over the last sort of eight year term. Uh, he is interesting because he's not from the appellate ranks. Usually, that's a, a good sign of of, 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 of of a good sign for candidates who want to. Advance the finalists. Although the governor last time chose Sarah Campbell, who wasn't a judge at all, she was worked for the attorney general's office. So hmm. things can change. Now another candidate out of Chattanooga, we have attorney Michael Richardson. Yes, Michael Richardson is a, is a trial lawyer. Interestingly, uh, you know the Republicans traditionally don't have a close relationship with with trial lawyers. Uh, and in his application, he spoke of winning some pretty major verdicts. One was fifteen point six million, the other was ten point four million mm. in East Tennessee. Uh, that's the sort of thing that uh, trial lawyers like, and 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 Republican pro business Republicans tend to be wary of, especially someone like the governor, who before he was governor was a big proponent of uh, tort reform, uh, placing caps on damages on on, on non economic damages in lawsuits. So it's it's unclear uh, how or whether the governor or the judicial uh, uh, selection panel will be particularly impressed with that with that background. Mm-hmm. And lastly, we have former gubernatorial legal counsel Dwight Tarwater of Knoxville. Well, Tarwater is somebody who is is from the sort of pro business wing of the party. He was the legal advisor to former governor Bill Haslam, uh, and has represented a lot of big businesses in sort of. Uh, class action cases, including on asbestos and the, the coal ash spill in, in East Tennessee and, and things like that. So uh, he has experience, you know, with the process of vetting candidates when he was a legal advisor. Uh, he has experience on, you know, with the, the sort of judicial structure in the state and, and is held in pretty high regard by a lot of folks. I guess the, the one issue that might come up for him is that he's considered sort of from the establishment wing hmm. of the party, which you know, the, the base and the, and the movement conservatives might not be as, as thrilled about as, as, as others. So we have a breakdown of five candidates. Do you have any sense of who the front runners are at this point? I would have to guess uh, if, if that the panel will probably settle on Davis, Greenholtz and Tarwater as the three finalists. What happens after that, I guess, is, is wide open. Any potential dark horses out there? I think it'd be pretty unlikely for Richardson to make it through. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with with Rambo's record in terms of what the panel is looking for, except for the fact that he might not have the appellate experience or the high-level experience that the others do. Now, would any of these appointments really shake up the nature and fabric of the court? Not really. Uh, again, given that Lee is, is usually an outlier in, in these opinions— Taking, you know, making a decision four to one ver- to five to zero doesn't change the outcome. Mm-hmm. The the three to two cases are are, are relative rarities uh, in on this court and the court in general. Uh, we had one recently uh, that was when the high court in November threw out mandatory life sentences for juvenile uh, homicide convictions, and in that it was an interesting case because Connie Clark had passed away and a special judge was named and it was former Justice Bill Koch. And in the end, it was Coke, Lee, and uh, Holly Kirby who sided with the majority versus the, the other two, uh, Bivens and uh, and Page. But again, it's pretty unique circumstances. You take Lee out of the equation and put in one of these other justices. Chances are that that ends up three two the other way. Mm-hmm. But again, it's unusual that it gets to that point. Now, what can we look forward to as this process moves along? Uh, 
you know, we'll see a lot of action quickly today when the panel decides who the finalists are and it goes to the governor. And then we'll see a period of quiet because there's nothing public after that until the governor emerges and says, here's who my choice is. We'll wait for that white smoke that you alluded to earlier. And, and it'll probably be several weeks. And then, you know, and then we'll see. Eric Shelzig is the editor of the Tennessee Journal. He is following the selection process for the next state Supreme Court justice. Eric, thank you for joining us, and thanks for your reporting. Thanks for having me. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about the history of the Tennessee State Supreme Court and what makes it a little different. Join the conversation. What do you want to know about our state Supreme Court? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The Tennessee Supreme Court is the highest legal authority in our state. It is the final word on legal decisions here, and that final word sets precedent and can change lives. Such a powerful institution can seem almost mythological in nature, inspiring both awe and fear. But what is it like to be in the state Supreme Court? What happens there? And how do the human beings appointed as justices do their jobs? My next guest has firsthand experience. Bill Koch is a retired Tennessee State Supreme Court justice and is currently dean of the Nashville Law School. He joins me now. Bill, thank you for being here and welcome to This thank, is Nashville. Thank you for having me. Really, really a pleasure to talk with you. So you've spent seven years on the bench at the State Supreme Court. Before the break, we heard about the current selection process, but I understand it was different back when you were appointed by former Governor Phil Bredesen in 2007. Tell us, what was your appointment process like? Well, the process was very similar. Uh, the only di main difference was there was no legislative confirmation, but there was a statutory commission that screened applicants and sent the governor three names. And as... Uh, you heard in the first segment uh, there was a little legal disagreement over how the commission was functioning mm -hmm. when I was appointed. That ultimately led to the constitutional amendment in 2014 that has the current process. And the main difference is now that the, the screening panel is set up by executive order. The governor sets up the panel rather than the legislature. Okay. I'm, I'm curious, was the interview process a lot more private back then? No, the interview process was public. Uh, now, it has not always been the case. I've gone through uh, a merit selection system since the mid-'80s, and the selection process used to be private. Mm -hmm. uh, now it, it's been public, I would say, since the early-'90s. Uh, the interview with the governor is private, but everything else is open. You have any advice for the folks who are being interviewed today? Be themselves. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. Simple as that. Wonderful. Now, now, talk to me about what it's like to sit on the bench of the highest court in the state. What does it feel like to have that kind of responsibility? Well, I, I would say it's not entirely different than sitting on one of the intermediate appellate courts. You're dealing with issues of law. I think the added weight on the Tennessee Supreme Court is that you're last, mm. that your decision, except if it involves a question of, of the U.S. Constitution, which can be appealed to the United States Supreme Court, 
the buck stops with us. So the fact that we're last adds weight and pressure to try to make sure we get it right. How do you all deal with that pressure? Be ourselves. Mm-hmm. Good advice for everyone in all situations. Now tell me, how does a case come to the Supreme Court? Well, the Supreme Court, uh, litigants do not have the right to have us review a case. Uh, we have discretionary review. And what that would mean is, as the case is decided in the trial court, there is an appeal of right to either the Court of Appeals or the Court of Criminal Appeals. And parties uh, have that, whether they have a meritorious issue or not. Mm -hmm. But the losing party in the Court of Appeals or the Court of Criminal Appeals, if they want the Supreme Court to review it, they have to ask for permission and they have to explain why we ought to take their case. And uh, the Supreme Court, just like the United States Supreme Court, takes a very small percentage of cases. They have to be important. They have to be matters where there's conflict. They have to be matters of first impression that need to get clarified. Uh, other than that, we're just not going to take it just to, just to have another decision. Now, you know, clearly any case that makes it to the highest court is an important one. But in your mind, what, are, what were some of the most significant cases that you were a part of? Well, significance can mean different things to different people. I would say the weightiest cases that I sat on were the death penalty cases. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that's a very sobering experience uh, to, to decide the case, then to have to issue an order setting the date for an execution, and then uh, at least the practice when I was on the court was the day of the execution, we were all together and we stayed together, and we were next to a telephone mm. uh, to handle any last-minute matters, uh, and there generally were last-minute issues, some extraordinary appeals or things like that. But it's, it's a very weighty process to go into the early hours of the morning you know, knowing that life is at stake. That's, that's pretty sobering, really. You know, executions are in the news again lately. Do you think the issue could come before the state Supreme Court soon? There's no doubt it will get back before the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, the irony is that the, the way that Tennessee has carried out capital punishment, and, and I'm not now taking a position for or against the death penalty. You haven't asked me to do that. But mm -hmm. the way that Tennessee has done it has been litigated for decades. And there's really been no change, not much change. Uh, but Governor Lee's decision to halt executions and appoint an external person to examine how we did it has accomplished more in terms of shining a light on that process and making improvements or adjustments to that process than any litigation we've had in the last 30 years. You know, as I mentioned, you served on the state, state Supreme Court for seven years before you retired. You, but you were called back in to be an emergency justice for a pretty important case that we just heard about in the previous segment. How did, how did that happen? Well, as, as your previous interview, interviewee said, uh, Justice Clark died. Uh, uh, the court at that time uh, needed five judges to come up with a decision in the Booker case. They also needed five judges to decide the case about the uh, school voucher law. And uh, uh, I was just sitting in my office minding my own business and got a call from the chief justice to say, do you want to suit up? Mm -hmm. And I said, I'd be happy to do it. What was it like to be called back to the Supreme Court? Well, it's the first time I've been back 
you know, uh, when I retired, I left the building. It's you know, so I have I have not necessarily been back, but it, it was good to be the new kid on the block again. Did it take you long to get up to speed with the facts and the arguments of the case? No, it's kind of like riding a bicycle. Once you've prepared for oral arguments, you you know how to do it. You don't forget. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. With Tennessee poised to get a new Supreme Court justice, we're talking this hour about the past and present of our state's highest court. Tweet us your questions at This Is Nashville. Now, my next guests have not sat on the bench at the state Supreme Court, but they have argued cases in front of the justices. I'd like to welcome Judge Andy Bennett from the Court of Appeals and Attorney David Rabin, partner at Rabin Wiseman PC. Rabin and Wiseman PC, excuse me. Thank you both for joining us. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. So, thank you. I, you know, I want to get a sense of what's it like to argue in front of the state Supreme Court. Andy, let's start with you. Do you remember your first case? I, I remember it. The uh, it was very different than it is now. Actually, the uh, the courtroom at that time was very dark, mm. and there was a there was a light on the lectern. Now they've got all these nice, you know, lights that put out a lot more light, but it was a very dark room. And, and if you wanted to have notes and be able to see them, you had to, had to have that light on, on the lectern to do it. And, uh, it's a very imposing room. It's a beautiful, uh, building. If you've never been in there, uh, the, the, the deep red carpet, uh, the imposing bench in front of you with, with five very serious looking people, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, it, you walk into that room, and you know it's a room that important things have happened in. And uh, it does make you, you think about, you know, what your your place is and what the process is and and uh, be very proud of it. Did you get in the, an, an adrenaline rush? Um, yes. Yes. I, I, um, I did. I'm sure I did. Now, David, what has your experience been like arguing before the Supreme Court? Well, the first thing I want to mention is that we have three Supreme Court buildings in Tennessee. I think we're unique in that. We've one in Knoxville, Nashville, and Jackson. And because the Constitution divides it up that way, it requires the court to sit. Now, I've argued cases in all three of the courtrooms um, in our Supreme Court. It's a very different experience in each one of them. And as Andrew pointed out, the, the courtrooms are different. When the very first time I argued a case in the Tennessee Supreme Court, I had just joined the state attorney general's office in 1974. They still had spittoons, if you can believe that, mm-hmm. sitting in the courtroom for the uh, – that people didn't actually use them to spit in from chewing tobacco. But that's how archaic it was. And, of course, it's been much more, more modernized. But to answer your question, some people have described arguing in the Supreme Court of Tennessee sort of like Dorothy uh, standing in front of the Wizard of Oz in, in, in that movie. Uh, it, 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 you, you are impressed by the seriousness of it. You've got very, five very intelligent people asking you hard questions, intentionally so, and, and you darn well better be prepared. Uh, typically what happens is there's almost always just one issue in front of the court and you spend 30 minutes, there's a time limit, answering questions and delivering your argument. Uh, I've argued uh, maybe 15 or 20 cases in my career in front of the Supreme Court 
Every one of them is different. Uh, but you plan ahead and you practice your argument in advance with other lawyers. Uh, you sort of moot court it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's an exciting experience. It goes much faster than you think. Uh, and you kind of get an idea of which way they're going, so to speak, by the kinds of questions. You could certainly be wrong about which way they're going, but they're trying to come up with a common denominator, a kind of holding that, that they can all agree with. And of course, they challenge you on your position. And I've taken some extreme positions in the court, but because the court has granted review in the case, you know they're interested in it. So I try to be responsive to the questions that they're asking. Mm-hmm. It's an exciting it's an exciting experience, and I, I relish it. I love it. You know, there's these five judges that you're presenting to who are regular people with different personalities and perspectives. Andy, when you're arguing, do you try to get a sense of who they are and how you can connect to them, kind of what David was kind of alluding to, gauging where they're going to rule? Well, you know, if you have some experience with the court— you can almost guess who's going to be interested in what issue. And, and if you are, have, have done your homework properly, you'll know, you'll know what your questions are going to be. Okay. Because you, you, you have to analyze what your weaknesses are and, and your strengths of the case. And you lead with the strengths and be prepared to deal with the weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you can, you can expect, you know, I used to expect you know, certain judges to, to hone in on procedure. Okay. And I would, other judges were more interested in the, in the, uh, um, merits uh, of the case. Now I understand that both you and David have argued cases in front of Bill. Is that right? Uh, I did when he was on the court of appeals. Okay. I actually, was appointed to succeed him on the Court of Appeals. So oh. I never argued in front of him when he was on the Supreme Court. Now, they say that Nashville is a small town, but really, really, this is truly it. A question for you, David. Have you ever experienced any moments of levity and humor when arguing? Of course. Uh, they they sometimes, I remember once I was with my co-counsel, and he argued, and he said, oh, uh, Mr. Yarbrough, you've brought your lawyer with you, which would have been me. Hmm. Uh, and sometimes they do laugh at that. At, at, there's an issue of levity there. But at the end of the day, the court is interested in the policy. What is the reason for the rule? And that's what I try to do when I argue, is to go back to the history of the rule. What it is that they're trying to change? Because they're not there just to affirm what's happened before. That court is a policy-making court. They want to change the rule because the rule is, is not good. They, they, they think it should be changed. But one way or the other, and your client can either better get the benefit of it or the detriment of it. Mm-hmm. I've had that experience several times. Uh, I've argued uh, the constitutionality of the death penalty case. I argued the Graham decision, which changed the rule on the definition of insanity. I mean, it doesn't get any more profound than that when the court is weighing what should be the law on uh, the definition of insanity. I worked on that case for a very long time. And so that's the kind of case that our Supreme Court takes. Uh, but they, they, they are serious about what they're doing, and there's a little bit of levity to it. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a very serious proceeding. You know, Bill, talking about the seriousness and the gravity of the, these decisions that you all are rendering, teamwork 
and working with others is really key. What was your working relationship like with your fellow Supreme Court justices? We certainly had a professional relationship. Uh, I would say it was a cordial relationship. Uh, some of us had personal histories with our colleagues that went back years before any of us were on the bench. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, but collegiality is a very important uh, ingredient in coming up with good decisions. But collegiality's fragile. And somebody can have a bad day, that can set off the balance a little bit. Mm -hmm. A new justice joins the court, requires everybody to recalibrate. And, and some uh, experts have said that it takes a court between three and five years to come to a level ground when a new person's added. Wow. Just for the personal dynamics to get worked out. So collegiality is very, very important. Uh, and I certainly had that while I was on the Supreme Court. You know, you mentioned the death penalty earlier. Are there any other cases or issues that you expect the Tennessee Supreme Court to take up this year? Well, I keep track of what they've granted permission to appeal in. So they, they have a number of, I would really call them non-spectacular but important issues that are not necessarily going to get on the front page of the paper. Mm. Uh, but I would I would like to say one thing though. David had said that the court's a policy making court, and and that's right. But perhaps it needs to get clarified a little bit. The the most of the Supreme Court's job is to make sure that the courts are correctly interpreting and applying laws passed by the legislature. Those laws are policy. As long as those laws are constitutional, as long as they don't violate the federal constitution or the state constitution, our job is not to second-guess that policy. It's just to figure out what the legislature intended to do when it passed that law. Sadly, all too often, my friends in the legislature do not write their laws clearly. Mm -hmm. So it's the job of the Supreme Court and the intermediate appellate courts to figure out what do these words mean and how they should be applied. And so many of our cases, we are simply trying to understand what the legislature intended and apply it. I want to get into a little bit of the politicization of the courts in the next segment. But Andy, let me ask you real quick, are there, what cases are you expecting? Or would, yeah, what cases are you expecting from the Supreme Court this year? What cases am I expecting? Well, Certainly, as uh, Dean Koch alluded to earlier, there will be uh, there will be a, when the death penalty comes back and starts to be implemented, that case will will be front and center, pretty quick. Uh, in terms of of other cases, you know, there's there's another uh, issue on the vouchers coming up through the courts. It's I think uh, being appealed now to the. If I read, remember what I read in the paper, being appealed to the Court of Appeals, and that will probably work its way up. Um, and you know, there'll be cases that uh, we never even thought of that'll mm. that'll pop up, and and they'll take. And and I would like to say, sometimes the Supreme Court takes it for a policy. Sometimes they take they take it to make sure the law is is clear. That, and sometimes they take it because the Supreme Court should rule on it. 
even if they agree with the Court of Appeals or Court of Criminals Appeals decision, it's an important enough issue uh, that they're going to take it and rule on it so that there will be a state Supreme Court decision on that case. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about Tennessee's Supreme Court and look back at some of its most significant rulings over the years. What questions do you have about our state's highest court? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. In November, Tennessee Supreme Court Justice Sharon Lee announced her retirement. Today, candidates are interviewing to take her place. So this hour, we're exploring our state's highest court. Just like other state Supreme Courts, it's the final word on matters of law, but it's different from other courts too. How did it get this way? Let's dive into the history of our state Supreme Court and some of the rulings that have shaped our state. My guests are retired Supreme Court Justice Bill Koch, Judge Andy Bennett of the Court of Appeals, and attorney David Rabin. Again, thank you all for being here. Now, Andy, you're a member of the Tennessee Supreme Court Historical Society. Yes. So yes. You're, you're the perfect person to ask, how was the Supreme Court of Tennessee formed? Well, that's that's an interesting question. Hmm. It was under the first Constitution of Tennessee, uh, they adopted the way that North Carolina had had uh, created the courts, and that was that the legislature created the court and appointed the judges. And that lasted uh, into the 1830s, from 1796 to the 18, mid-1830s when they they changed it a bit, and they changed it uh, partly because uh, of of a concern for the independence of the court. You know what what the legislature can create, the legislature can abolish. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in the early 1830s, the Supreme Court came out with a few cases that the legislators didn't like, and there were some rumbles about that. And I believe that got got the attention of people who uh, who who cared about judicial independence. So in the, the second Tennessee Constitution, which was went into effect in 1835, they did several things. They wrote the Supreme Court into the Constitution. Can't be abolished. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they put in a, a very specific, detailed separation of powers provision to, to say hands off. And uh, they put in a provision that said the legislature could not increase or diminish a judge's salary during that judge's term. Mm-hmm. So a judge could not be punished for a decision that, that well, at that time that he made or, or, uh, or rewarded for making a decision. So it was, they made these changes to establish a really strong checks and balances system. Yes, yes. It, it was to, to uh, ensure uh, a more independent judicial system. Now, I understand that initially the legislature, as you said, they appointed judges, but in 1853 provided uh, a provision for the direct election 
of judges. How did that have an impact on our judicial system? Well, it, it created judicial races. You know, it, you no longer had to get, you know, X number of votes from legislators to get elected. You had to go out and, and meet the people. It was part of it was part of the general democratization of of government. Mm-hmm. You know, in 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 the thirty five Constitution, they they had many more people, local government people elected. Under the first constitution, local government folks like your sheriff uh, would have been appointed by the legislature. Okay. So that that was all changing, and, and doing that with the judges was a part of that process. Now, David, how is our court different from other states? There are several differences. One is that they appoint the state supreme, the uh, attorney general. It's the only... Uh, attorney general's office in the country. Most of the attorney generals are elected or appointed by the governor. In Tennessee, under our constitution, the attorney general is uh, appointed by the Supreme Court, and that creates at least the appearance of some conflict because the attorney general argues cases there. But in my experience, having been a member of that office for many years, uh, they, they, they are an independent entity. But that is one of the one of the differences. One of the similarities is, is what we haven't really discussed yet is not only does the court render judicial decisions, they also created rules of criminal procedure, rules of evidence, uh, rules of, of civil procedure, rules of juvenile procedure. I served on these rules commissions for many years, and they all the, the legislature creates statutes, but the rules of procedure are created by our Supreme Court. And many of the decisions that they render uh, interpret their own rules. And you have an interesting issue here about conflicts between the governor, conflicts between the legislature. It was a case I was involved in, Lindsay Lowe case, where the legislature was very upset with the rule of criminal procedure. Uh, we're dealing with search warrants. And they passed a statute saying that you could have a, a good faith exception to the search warrant rule. And the Supreme Court of Tennessee, in the case I handled, said that was unconstitutional. It violated the separation of powers, that the legislature went too far in prohibiting the court from creating its own criminal rules of procedure, hmm. and it struck that statute down. Uh, and so you have that tension under our separation of powers uh, between the governor. You have a very famous case in the early 1900s where the court affirmed the conviction uh, of uh, Colonel Cooper for shooting Mr. Carmack, who was a former editor of the Tennessean. And as they're affirming his conviction from the bench, the governor issues a pardon for uh, Colonel Cooper. So you have this tension that so even though they get to rule on things, the other branches get to assert themselves. Uh, you have that in the federal cases and in other courts. But at the end of the day, the court is a very dynamic uh, very well-respected court in other, from other jurisdictions. Uh, our cases are cited. So uh, there are some differences from other courts, but I'm happy to say that the similarities are, are, are paramount, and I want to talk about the quality of our justices. Uh, they've always been excellent uh, in my experience. I've argued in front of all of them, argued in front of Bill Koch when he was a judge, a uh, justice, uh, he took off after me two seconds after I started my argument, uh, but that was part of it. I expected it, but uh, it's a it's a dynamic court. Uh, it's an interesting court, and it has a tremendous impact. And the, lastly, I'll mention this: 
the, the court also regulates the attorneys in Tennessee. All attorneys essentially are governed by the Supreme Court of Tennessee. Uh, doctors and stuff, they're regulated by the boards, health boards. But the, uh, all lawyers are regulated by the Tennessee Supreme Court at the end of the day. They have boards and agencies that work for them. But all lawyers are essentially uh, supervised by the Supreme Court. So they take their job seriously uh, and supervise the lawyer's behavior. And future mm-hmm. cases, they also re- work on effective assistance of counsel. And that, that yeah. may be the new issue coming up in their courts. Okay. Now, something that's interesting, all of you are alumni of the Attorney General's office. Bill, what stands out to you about that connection? Other than the fact that it's undeniably true, I think that that the Attorney General's office gave all of us an opportunity to earn while we learned. Hmm. Uh, uh, we were thrown into the deep end of the pool. We were handling cases involving issues and levels of complexity that many of our counterparts in law school were not even getting near at that time. And so you get to know state government uh, pretty intimately in the attorney general's office. Plus, you get great experience litigating cases. Uh, Depending on the section of the attorney general's office you're in, you develop relationships with members of the general assembly. And uh, while David's correct about separation of powers and the tensions, uh, that m- many times those issues are negotiated successfully based on personal relationships that go back decades. Now, you mentioned something earlier before we got the show started. You actually gave David his first job fresh out of law school. I, I plead guilty to that. <laughs> <laughs> Question for you all, though. You know, of. Uh, you know, are there any cases outside of death penalty cases that the court is mandated to take up? Well, the one, the one variety, and, and again, this is fairly unique, are workers' compensation cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we may be one of the few, if not the only courts in the country that have direct jurisdiction over workers' comp. But about 20, 25 years ago, the number of workers' comp cases were getting so great that the court created a special workers' comp review panel and divert the cases to that panel and then uh, have the discretion to review what the panel does. But that's death penalty cases and workers' comp cases. It's kind of A to Z. That's the two. What does that tell you about the workers' comp situation here in the state of Tennessee? Well... It actually, that's a historical anomaly. Uh, Workers' comp cases have changed greatly in the last 10 years since they changed the model where workers, how, on how workers' comp claims are handled. But the reason why it was direct, a direct appeal to the Supreme Court was that the labor unions who were uh, strongly in favor of workers' comp did not want delays in workers getting benefits that they were entitled to by a long appellate process. So they just wanted to go to the end of the line as fast as they could get there. Mm -hmm. Now, we can't talk about the Supreme Court without talking about some of the monumental cases it's heard. Andy, what is a pivotal case from the Supreme Court you feel is important to remember? Well, uh, certainly going, staying with recent times, I think the uh, small schools education funding case in the early 90s was was incredibly important because it it forced 
a change in the way we, we looked at funding our schools. And that's had ripple effects to now that we're still fighting over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that, was, that was a hugely significant case. You know, there, there have been many, many others over the years. You know, you know, you know people talk about the Scopes case. but yeah, the Scopes monkey trial in yeah, 1925. Scopes yeah. didn't really decide that much. To be perfectly honest, okay. everything sort of rocked along the same afterward. Uh, you know, there were there were some cases uh, that set up the proposition for judicial review in Tennessee. You know, there's Marbury versus Madison in the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, mm-hmm. there's each state has its own version, and there's there's one that John Overton wrote in around 1815 that that sets up the premise for why you would do it. Uh, I think that one was important. Um, another one that I remember that got huge publicity, huge, and I wasn't sure how important it really was, 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 uh, you know, whether bingo was a lottery. Whoa. That was, that was a big deal. Uh, uh, I can imagine a certain population who hangs out on Tuesday, Thursday, and maybe Sunday nights really thinking yeah, that that's a big but deal. There, there was, there was a problem with some of that though. There were, you know, you, you the law allowed churches to do it, and you know what's a church? There were a lot of mm. um, suspicious-looking entities masquerading as churches. Okay, uh, you know, and and so that case sort of forced the state to deal with bingo in a more responsible way, I think, and and uh, and so I, I think that was that was important. Because it, it dealt with a lot of fundraising that uh, that groups do and okay. entertainment. Okay. The next time someone invites me to bingo and it's in a dark room with some unsavory types, I'm going to be thinking about you, Andy. So, you know, David. Uh, thank you, I think. <laughs> you know, how about you, David? You know, what state Supreme Court case is really particularly significant to you? Well, there's, there's a few. The first one, of course, is the very recent case. And uh, Bill Koch said on that uh, thing, three to two decision, a split vote, finding that a life sentence for juveniles at 51 years was unconstitutional, that that a, that a juvenile had to be considered for some type of parole after, say, 25 or 30 years. Uh, the legislature passed this wacky law back in the 95 and they struck it down. This, this is huge significance because this is an act of the legislature that the Supreme Court finds to be unconstitutional. It affected some 200 people and set the, set the uh, ground level for how we punish juveniles. It's still a very severe sentence, but they basically did away with the automatic life sentence for juveniles. That had an enormous impact on the criminal justice system, and the court asserted its authority um, on that. The other decision that I thought was tremendously important, and people don't consider it as much, is what that's known as comparative fault. So if two people get in an accident under the old law, if a person was even partially at fault, they got nothing. And now under this comparative fault under our modern tort system, you apportion fault between the parties. Somebody Mm. can be 20% at fault or 40%. And so you apportion fault and the damages based on that. That was a very progressive uh, decision 
uh, of our Supreme Court. I think that that those decisions have an enormous impact on our on our uh, civil civil justice system. We've been talking about criminal cases here, but on the civil system, they handle those kinds of issues and evidentiary rules uh, to make things fair for people. Uh, I, I think at the end of the day, if I had to step back and talk about the importance. I think the court is very cognizant of rules of procedure to make cases fairer. They're not only considering the result, is this a just result or not? We can argue about that all day. But I think they argue about what it makes for a fair system because you ultimately have jury trials and that sort of thing. You want to have rules of procedure that enhance the fact-finding process so people have confidence in the system. Um, Our Supreme Court, uh, makes these decisions. They also, one thing that's very unique about our court, maybe other courts do that, they sit all over the state, not only in three different courthouses, they sit in local courthouses. I've heard, I've had courts in, in gymnasiums in the Supreme Court. They handle case, hear cases in local courts. So the people can come to the local school and watch the Supreme Court in action. And they're very much now being very aggressive about getting out there so people can see the court. Uh, at work, and to take the mystery out of that, that this is part of living, breathing court that, Im- that impacts all of us. And that is something that is a relatively recent, uh, but it's very admirable uh, to make the court visible to people so we have confidence in the court, which we do. You know, Andy, we have 30 seconds left. What do you think the public's perception of the state Supreme Court is, given that the national, the federal Supreme Court is viewed as highly politicized? I think uh, I think it's mostly a mystery. I think uh, uh, a lot of people don't understand what appellate courts do, and that's one reason we set up the uh, Tennessee Judiciary Museum in the Supreme Court building, and we tour groups through it, and we talk about what the appellate courts do and the history of the appellate courts. That is Judge Andy Bennett of the Court of Appeals. He was joined by attorney David Rabin and retired Tennessee State Supreme Court Justice Bill Koch. Thank you all for being here today. Really appreciate this lesson. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we'll discuss the rise in popularity of AI art apps. Do we know everything we should about AI? This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind and Arthi Music or Laurent and Demir Blade. Special thanks to Steve Cavendish, Rachel Harmon, and Kristen Smart. Conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.